All right, Christine, Morgan's not feeling well. It's up to you to do the intro for the both of you. All right, you can do this. Gotta the professional podcast. Gotta act like a professional person. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to Foss and Crafts. A podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host Morgan. And my co- <laughs> Okay. Morgan's never going to let me get away with that. Hello, and welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host Morgan, who is not feeling well and is downstairs at the moment, and my co-host Christine, who is in fact me because I am standing in for Morgan at the moment. Well, good news, Morgan's still kind of here with this episode because this is a recording with some commentary in it of a presentation we co-presented together at FOSDEM this very year. Lisp, but beautiful, Lisp for everyone. And yes, there's some additional commentary as you go in, especially because, since this was partly talking about Lisp's visual appearance, uh, you're not going to see that on the screen while you listen to the thing. Although we will link to the video presentation, you can watch that. Or you can listen to Christine enunciate out loud what you would have seen on the screen while you wash the ditches or whatever it is that you do while you listen to our podcast. Um, That's usually what I do when I listen to podcasts. I wash the dishes. Anyway, you are getting the sense of why Morgan co-hosts this this podcast. Why Why Morgan co-hosts this podcast? Because, and I will leave all that in. If Morgan was not co-hosting with me, the show would go off the rails, as it is at this very moment. Later on, Morgan and I will review this episode, and Morgan will be looking at me, giving me a judging look. (laughs) But that's for later. This is for now. Look, if you didn't want me to be a silly goose, you shouldn't have said yes when I said I could just do all the intermission stuff and beginning and end all by myself. There you go. So anyway, Lisp, again, didn't we just give a Lisp episode? Yes, we just did. The very last episode. It was about Lisp in the general case. What is it? What's it all about? Etc. Etc. Well, if you know much about Lisp, you know that it is famous for having lots of parentheses and for people being scared of all those parentheses. Yes, we spoke about that a bit in the last episode, in addition to the things that are nice about Lisp, but we also talked about people being scared of them. Right, And so in this very episode, in this very talk that Morgan and I presented at FOSDEM, we talk about this subject, the way that Lisp could be perceived about the world, the way that it could be perceived for being beautiful, how we could bring that beauty to the general public. And that is what you will hear today in this podcast episode. Now you may also be thinking to yourself, Christine, didn't you just say that at the last Hacking Craft... You were going to give a live presentation where you showed off a tutorial about Scheme and why, yes, in fact, I did. And it went very well. And the Sprightly Institute just released a paper called a Scheme Primer, which is pretty much exactly that very same presentation, but in written form that you can refer to and check about and learn from 
on your own time and schedule. But wait, Christine, didn't you also say that there would be a follow-up Hacking Craft where this was recorded? And yes, that is happening this very Saturday, which is, wait, what date is it? It would be the 16th, the 16th of July, 2022. I will be presenting live a scheme primer to you, potentially, or a future recorded version. No, I'd be recorded. A future listening version of you. Yes, that is what would happen. Anyway, it'll be recorded in front of a live audience, and that audience could include you. Speaking of exciting things, guess what? We got a new Patreon supporter. Their name... Brian Small, thank you for being a supporter. We appreciate it. If you want to be read in the intro or outro by me, Christine, or Morgan, or actually probably a combination thereof, because normally that's what we do, you can donate to our Patreon campaign. You can select a level. That's how we know. Anyway, we have this whole presentation that we're going to go over in audio form, even though it's partly visual, and I will comment on. So why don't we get to that right now? And then I will cut in at the points where it is appropriate <laughs> to have things explained to you. I hope you're not regretting <laughs> that this episode does not have Morgan already. Probably are. Too late. All right, let's go. Hello, and welcome to our talk today, Lisp But Beautiful. Lisp for everyone. And I am co-presenter at this presentation, Christine Lemmer-Weber. I'm also co-host of the podcast Foss and Crafts. I'm also CTO of Sprightly Institute and lead developer of Sprightly, which both use Lisp quite a bit. And I've been a Lisp enthusiast for a long time. I am Morgan Lemmerweber. I am an art historian, but I have also been actively engaging in the free and open source software, free culture, etc. communities for the last several years. I am the director of Foss and Crafts Studios, and I am also the co-presenter in this presentation and co-host of Foss and Crafts podcasts. Great. So we're going to be talking about Lisp today. So let's start with an overview. What is it? What's with all these parentheses? Well, the parenthetical nature of Lisp, shall we say, uh, it's, I think a lot of us actually find it fairly beautiful, even though I think Lisp has a reputation of being scary and ugly from the rest of the world. But as you can see here, you know, there, there's quite a lot of structure here, and that structure can look nice if your editor supports it. And in my opinion, the structure of Lisp is nice because it's clear. My introduction to any sort of coding was actually with HTML. So I understood when learning that, that if you, you know, start your italics and then you don't do your close italics tab, then the rest of your document is going to be in italics. So the idea of having the very clearly visible start and end with... Um, something you type in, was already comprehensible to me. And I think one of the things that Lispers really like about the language is that it's extensible. Pretty much no matter what paradigm you want to explore, Lisp can handle it. And that's partly because it doesn't really impose too much assumptions about what languages are going to be. Um, and so a lot of language exploration has traditionally happened in Lisp. And if you want to do any of these things, you can do it. And, you know, here we even see something uh, on the right, it's called Hackett, and it's basically a Lispy version of Haskell. So no matter what you want to explore, Lisp can pretty much do it, because Lisp supports code that writes code. And 
speaking of, it's actually possible to write Lisp on top of Lisp really easily. This is a wonderful talk by William Byrd called The Most Beautiful Program Ever Written. And in it, he pretty much demonstrates that in a page of code, or actually even this small amount of code on the screen, you can actually write a Lisp interpreter that runs on top of Lisp. And I don't know of any other languages where you can do that quite so succinctly and expressively. So all that said, who's afraid of the big, big bad Lisp? And the answer seems to be mostly people who already know how to program in other programming languages. So Christine and I co-developed and co-ran this series of digital humanities workshops. And for these workshops, we chose to use Racket and the associated markup language Scribble. And these workshops were geared towards people who had absolutely no prior experience in computer science or mathematics or even programming at all. So it was a very basic level of uh, tutorial. And that might seem weird using a Lisp. But uh, in general, we found that these students did not have a problem with the parentheses. And here you can see the flyers that we used, and this is the output side of it. And on the back of the flyers, we actually printed the scribble source code that we used to create the flyer, which was a really effective marketing tool because then we were able to show people something that they could look at and still comprehend, right? Because it's mostly sentences and strings, but that was more code than most of these humanities students experienced in their daily lives. And the workshops had two portions to it. The first was a tutorial that Christine wrote on how to build a snowman in Racket, which taught the very basics of computer programming using the programming language Racket. And they have a um, visual language, so we could just append together circles and make a snowman. And in this very short three to four hour workshop, these students who had never done any programming before were able to built a fairly good variety of snowmen, and the various parentheses did not um, seem too intimidating to these new people. In fact, we did find that uh, there were some students who said that it was hard for them, and those were the people who were the experienced programmers, because they found it unintuitive because they had prior assumptions of what languages were going to be like. Mm -hmm. So, speaking of, um, you know, when... Lispers tend to work inside of Lisp. It's not necessarily the way that people who have not programmed in Lisp and in editors that, you know, support Lisp very well tend to assume it's going to be. Outsiders often fear that they're going to spend a bunch of time mangling or having to keep track of parentheses, but an appropriate editor will actually keep track of that information for you. And uh, you can even see that my editor is helping me both find out where I am in the program and also even edit it in a very nice and Lispy way. Um, but this is not necessarily the impression that people have from the outset. Um, and one more note, you know, when I first started programming in Python, there were some similar complaints about Python. Python was only accessible to people who had access to special editors like Emacs. And, you know, most people weren't going to be able to use it. So having editor support is important. And another example uh, outside of Emacs that has good support for Lisp is Dr. Racket, which is a programming environment specifically made for Racket and Racket-based languages. So you already have 
um, like syntax highlighting and things like that specifically for the language you're using. And what that was one of the primary reasons we chose Racket for these digital humanities workshops as well is because we didn't have to teach students in our three to four hour allotted time how to use Emacs or Vi or Vim or something like that first and then teach them how to program. We just said open this or well install this uh, program and let's get started. And this is also how I got started. So since we, for the second portion of that workshop, did a tutorial on how to write academic papers in Scribble, and I had to write a dissertation, I decided to use Scribble to write my dissertation for all of the reasons that we were marketing to our digital humanities students why it was helpful. So here you can see on the left the Scribble source code document for my title page of my dissertation, and then on the right the HTML output. Christine cutting in, and indeed in this presentation at this point, on the left-hand side you can see Scribble, so if you haven't seen it before but you've used something like Markdown, it looks a lot like Markdown or something like that. Um, and, you know, the other thing that we're seeing on the screen is Morgan's actual rendered dissertation, as she just said. And it's helpful to write my dissertation in uh, Scribble using a markup language in general because, one, it's a lot easier to get consistent formatting with a markup language than, you know, writing it in LibreOffice or something similar to that. Two, there you can comment things out. So, for example, if you write a paragraph and one of your committee members says that you should take it out and then later another committee member asks you, why didn't you include this? That information is still there in your document. You don't have to go and find a version of the file that's written before. And then third, you can actually write programs into your um, source document to automate things like bibliography and image list and data mining and stuff like that. So in other words, it gave me access to programming tools. Right. And well, Emacs is, of course, an option and it's the most commonly recommended option for people who want to pick up Lisp. But, you know, not only do people seem to be afraid of Lisp, a lot of people seem to be afraid of Emacs. And I think after people have kind of waded into Emacs territory for quite a while, that fear goes away and is often but not always replaced with excitement. But it's worth noting that quite a few people do get an anxious interpretation. And for a very long time, I was one of those people that was pretty terrified of Emacs. But for me, I actually got started in programming partly by picking up Emacs. So I basically was a humanities student and I um, was also playing around with free and open source software and I asked, what editor should I use? And somebody told me, well, you really ought to use Emacs because it pretty much has everything. And I said, okay, well, how do I write a document my professor will accept using Emacs? And they said, well, use LaTeX. And so I just kind of, you know, burned the midnight oil and wrote my term papers in Emacs and LaTeX and ended up, you know, learning trial by fire. And in the process, I also ended up configuring Emacs and ended up, you know, discovering Emacs Lisp and so on, which is how you actually configure Emacs. And I was like, oh, wait, this is actually pretty neat. So Lisp wasn't that scary for me because Lisp was actually one of the first languages I ever encountered. And, you know, 
the more you use Lisp, the more you tend to configure it and the more you make it kind of shaped to your own interests. And here you can see I'm doing programming on the left, yes, but I'm also on the right-hand side making uh, plans for the uh, my project inside of org mode, but I'm also talking with people in the lower right-hand side in a chat room. But part of the problem here is that, you know, the more customized you make things, maybe the scarier this could look. In fact, that is why I spent many years being terrified of Emacs, because I knew that Christine had this really powerful program that basically she ran her entire life off of. And if you don't know what you're looking at, Emacs kind of looks incomprehensible to the random person walking around in the house without paying that much attention to your computer. So when I was learning Python, I chose to learn it using Gedit, mainly because... Emacs seemed way too overwhelming for me, but I was using, I was learning Python going through the Python tutorials with Christine's help. And at one point I ran into a problem that I required help with. And Morgan comes into my office and I said, well, no problem. Let me show you. So I sat down in front of my computer, um, spun around, you know, opened up Emacs and I opened up the file she was looking at. And, you know, I was fiddling around with the code on one side and I split my window and then ended up pulling up a shell on the other side, you know, put some debugging stuff in there, copied and pasted stuff from one part to the other, was kind of hopping around and splitting the windows. And, you know, then I ran the program and I said, well, and look, if all you have to do is move this to this to this. And it's pretty simple. And, you know, so it's easy, right? And I turned around. And basically the only words out of that very fast rambling definition that Christine gave me was, it's easy, right? And it was not easy to me. I didn't even know which screen of Christine's two monitors to look at. And of the of that, I didn't know which Emacs buffer to look at. I didn't know what an Emacs buffer was. And therefore, I didn't get the explanation for the thing that Christine was actually telling me what to do. So that gave us some insight on how people learn and how people have uh, maybe some learning curves to deal with. And also, it ended up actually informing the workshops we did. What I did afterwards is I switched to gedit, the editor environment that Morgan was already working with, and ended up walking her through the tutorial in there. Uh, and then when we did the digital humanities workshops, one of the reasons we chose Dr. Racket was that, you know, I, as one of the instructors of the class, would be using the same environment as the rest of the students. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote my dissertation using Scribble in Dr. Racket. Uh, but for a single semester paper, that's definitely something you can do. We realized that if you're writing something as large and long-term as a dissertation, it's probably more useful to have a more powerful text editor that you're using. Dr. Racket is great for editing uh, programming text in Racket because that's what it's made for. But um, there's just some functions that Emacs has that are harder to replicate in Dr. Racket. So you after... can basically use Dr. Racket to write Racket, and that's it. Yeah, and Scribble, but it's more limited. So after I finished my dissertation, because there's no way I was switching which text editor I was using in the middle of writing my dissertation, because I was already overwhelmed, uh, and I had some free time, and I was crawling out of the burnout from finishing my dissertation, I finally started to learn Emacs. And I discovered a few things. One is, yes, there is a very large learning curve to Emacs, largely because the keyboard shortcuts are not standard because they existed before standardized keyboard shortcuts became standardized. 
So that is something that you have to get used to. But two, it wasn't as scary as looking at Christine's Emacs setup made things seem um, because it doesn't have to be that complicated. And if you're starting out as a beginner, you should start out as a beginner, not looking at someone who has been using Emacs for a decade's monitor. So what's happening in this picture? So this um, was while I was preparing for a previous talk that I gave. So you can see at the top an org mode outline for uh, the talk that I was giving. And then at the bottom of the screen, I'm using Maggot, which is a um, feature within Emacs to use Git and revision control. And I found that very helpful for me because um, if you're not actively doing coding, you're probably not committing changes to Git as frequently. And the command line interface is really hard to remember. Yeah, if you don't already have a terminal open, then remembering to open a terminal and submit things to Git is somewhat difficult, um, especially if it's not something that you need to have other team members using regularly or something like that. So having a Git interface in the program that I'm already using to write my documents has made me a much more reliable committer for Git. So I'd also like to talk about SpaceMax because I think it's an interesting example of a community that it has something that's not, they have something they're used to, but the thing they're used to is not Emacs, right? So this is Emacs for Vi, Vi and Vim users, right? And it basically reconfigures Emacs um, to basically have Vim key bindings and so on and so forth, which has kind of its own user uh, universe of like user interface ideas. Um, but one of the interesting things is that I've noticed that most people who are Vi or Vim users who have picked up SpaceMax that I know actually stick with SpaceMax. And that's because it has a lot of useful features that come from the Emacs world, but they don't have to give up what they're comfortable with. Now, let's also acknowledge that there's probably a little bit of sample bias involved here and a little bit of survival bias involved here. And I'm sure that there are people who try SpaceMax that don't stick to it. But the fact that there are a large number of people who find this useful is... It's an indicator that, that having good default configuration that is familiar can help. Mm-hmm. And here we also see a project that I wish would get more attention and love called MouseMax. It configures Emacs to be kind of closer to something like Visual Studio or other code editors and kind of their default kind of look and feel and uh, key bindings. Now, the idea here is maybe we could actually make a blend of Emacs that is kind of more ready to go from what people expect from editors today. And Guile Studio is another example of that by Ricardo Wormus that kind of does that, but configures it for Guile more specifically, kind of like Dr. Racket. And then the other option is doing support for Lisps in more popular editors. So here, for example, um, you can see Racket in Visual, Visual Studio Code, which right now it's doing syntax highlighting and it's handling the, all these parentheses nicely. So if you can... Um, have support for Lisps in the uh, programming environments that people are already using for other languages, then that'll lower your learning curve. And then there's also some tools that you could use to help that transition. So here we've got um, Parenfer that basically you can put the white spaces that you're used to from other programming languages and then Parenfer changes the parentheses to indicate the changes that you're making via whitespace. So it 
makes it a little bit more intuitive to what you're used to while still being able to get the functionality of a lisp. Christine, cutting in again. By the way, if you've never checked this out, I highly recommend looking at a print for demo. It's pretty wild. Like you can just move around the indentation kind of like Python or whatever, and it just puts the parentheses in the places where you would expect the parentheses to go. So it's kind of more like you're just typing in something like Python and it just kind of fills in the structure that normally Lispers actually enter very manually by hand or, you know, let their editors enter, but you see it. And I'd like to suggest that maybe we've actually gotten caught in a local maxima, right? So we've got basically, you know, Lisp, and if you're trying to use it without, you know, proper editor support, it's terrible, right? But with editor, proper editor support, it's maybe actually better than almost anything else out there. Uh, editing Lisp is great. And that might actually lead Lispers to kind of not try exploring other options or maybe there's a better future out there but we kind of become disincentivized from exploring what it could be yeah so we've talked quite a bit about scribble already in this and then there's things like scribe so here we've got a um, screenshot of a chapter of my dissertation and it's uh, written in scribble and the way that scribble works is it just assumes that it's a racket programming language and you set that um, for your document and it assumes that everything you're typing is a string until you use the at sign to indicate that, nope, we're doing a code now. So here you've got different section headings, you've got the title, you've got footnotes, you've got italics, etc. And that switches it to racket code. And, you know, so this doesn't look too far away from LaTeX or Markdown or etc. But you can actually see that structurally, the thing that's at the top actually transforms into the thing that's at the bottom. It actually transforms into Lisp trees. Christine cutting in again. And in this next slide, you would see the scribble code at the top and the Lisp code it turns into at the very bottom, which at the beginning, it kind of looks like you're looking at a markdown type thing on the top part. And then you realize, oh my gosh, this is pretty much the same as this, you know, parenthetical structured representation at the very bottom as you look at the slide. Um, and this is actually just a different way to write Lisp that is more specific to a, um, textual needs. So, you know, what about something that's, you know, kind of more general, right? Not just, you know, making something specific to textual needs, but we want to write programs the way we normally write programs, but maybe we don't want all those parentheses everywhere. Well, this is WISP, which is done by uh, Arnie. Arnie Bob has this wonderful language called WISP, and what it does is it basically infers the structure of the language based off of the indentation. And what's really kind of interesting about this is it shows that Lisp, the parentheses are actually not essential. They're just one way of showing the shape of the structure. And so you could do it other ways, such as the white space based form here, because the definition we see on the left is exactly the same as the definition that we see on the right. And actually, you can use this to trick people into not being afraid of Lisp. And the Geeks Workflow language folks have done exactly that. So here is from the Geeks Workflow language tutorial page. Uh, if you go on there, it shows this, hmm, looks, you know, kind of just like YAML or some other kind of config language that you're probably familiar with. Um, and you read through the tutorial and you don't see any, you know, kind of Lispy parentheses anywhere in particular. And so when I've shown this to people, they tend to not be afraid, even though there are people who, when I've shown them other Lispy things, have responded with kind of fear. So 
maybe showing people a lispy environment by not showing them the lisp uh, the traditional parenthetical lisp representation first is actually a pretty good idea but i find that when i've tried writing wisp even though i think reading it is great writing it is actually kind of hard for me i have a hard time remembering kind of where i am structurally when i'm writing it and I think that, you know, seeing that the way that my editor is able to help me when I'm writing parenthetical Lisp helps me realize, you know, what I think Wisp really needs is similar level of editor support that we have, you know, for parenthetical Lisp. And Wraith is kind of an extension of these ideas. It's done by uh, Alex Noth, who is a Racket contributor. And basically his idea was... What if we take um, an indentation-based Lisp approach, but what we'll actually do is we'll just make it so that if you're writing code with indentation that would basically look like the Racket standard style guide, then that will actually be an appropriate uh, Racket structure. So um, that is what's happening here. And, you know, I helped contribute to this, and actually so did Arnie. And you can see that code on the left, if you just look on the left-hand side, it doesn't look pretty much scary if you even if you're not in a, an existing Lisper, but on the right, it's exactly equivalent to all that stuff. And then there's a different approach that we see in Fracture. So Fracture is a closer to a visual programming language, and instead of parentheses, it uses these color-coded shapes to indicate what pieces go together. And if you look at, you know, programming and structure in action, then you can see that it also has something of a uh, graphical user interface, too, to help you make your decisions for what's happening next. Christine again, and not going to lie, this is probably the point where you miss out the most by not seeing this presentation live. Looking at structure is pretty amazing. What you see is everything's shapes. Like, there's shapes that move around all the different expressions and it's not how we're kind of normally used to seeing code but it makes a lot of sense visually and i don't know i, I this is something i recommend actually clicking through in the show notes to see a demo of what fracture actually looks like maybe we'll even actually put it, it directly in the show notes so you can just see like a gif of it or something like that yeah we will do that so as someone who is both a perpetual novice at programming and also a very visual learner and have a better time interpreting visual cues, then this is a really interesting and appealing approach. And note that this has all the same structure that list normally has. It's just replaced the parentheses with shapes. And colors. So how do we bring all of these ideas together? Well, um, I mentioned Wisp, so let's take that as a case study. Right Here is the uh, grep package from Geeks written in Wisp. And as I said, I think it's quite beautiful and readable. Um, but as I said, I wish that there was more editor support. So I'd like to take a moment to kind of imagine what would happen if we blended several of the previous things that we saw. Well, we're kind of imagining and dreaming this up. So I'm going to give kind of a dreamy representation. Christine, cutting in again, interrupting herself. This is kind of the last thing that was kind of really useful to see visually in this presentation. What we have here is we see a geek's definition of grep, basically. It's like it's a structure that defines the package for grep, but it 
is written in Wisp, so it's all indentation-based. There's no parentheses, but there's kind of these dreamy, almost colored fog-like backgrounds I put around, kind of representing where the shapes would be if this was in Fracture instead. And so the point that I'm kind of making here is that maybe we could kind of combine visually what Wisp gives us and what Fracture gives us. But what if our editors helped show us the structure underlying uh, what's happening in Wisp? After all, if parentheses are just one way of representing the limited structure of the, of the language, um, we could actually have background colors actually show us um, that very same information. And I feel like if, you know, it doesn't have to be as cool and dreamy looking as this looks, but if my editor would actually highlight the background color indicating to me which structural level, level I'm currently in, I feel like I would have a pretty good idea of where I am when I'm writing Wisp code. So then you have the combination of the white space approach that a lot of other programmers who have learned with different languages prefer, but you also have a visual representation without the parentheses. Yeah, so we can see this as kind of like a hybrid dream between Wisp and uh, Fracture and even Perinfer. Yeah. So, conclusions. Can we really make these dreams reality? Well, I think it's up to us. We, as Lispers, we know that Lisp is wonderful and great and that uh, tree-based representations are really powerful. They make what's happening clear and they make exploring language ideas just really, really wonderful. But maybe either we can take the structures we have parenthetically and make them more accessible to a wider audience, or maybe we could even find out that there are more beautiful things out there that we haven't even explored yet. Or we can have solutions that meet multiple of these needs because people learn and program in different ways. So if we can just come up with support structures that help multiple people, then that's even better. Right. Well, that's it. That's the end of this talk. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us. And happy parenthetical or non-parenthetical hacking. And that was the presentation. But in the Q&A, I got to show off something pretty neat which is that I basically shared this presentation ahead of time with Arnie, the author of Wisp. And what does Arnie go and do? Arnie goes and implements the kind of dreamy system I suggested, not with the kind of fog-like elements to it, but the general idea of having background colors representing the different indentation structure, which kind of combined the power of like the visual shapes of structure with the indentation-based Lisp approach of Wisp. So there weren't any parentheses, but you could clearly see where things started and ended, which is just a really incredible thing for Arnie to pull off in that incredibly short period of time. So that's pretty much it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I think most of the presentation was pretty understandable without seeing the visuals, and hopefully I did an adequate job of jumping in visually in the other portions. And aside from that... I hope if you are excited about the idea of being able to learn Scheme and Lisps in general, uh, maybe you can come to the Hack and Craft this weekend. And if not, we will be posting a recording of that video online on the internet. And with that, I bid you adieu. Have a good night, everyone. Bye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christine Lemmerweber. 
The intro music is composed by Christine Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at Octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community on hash Foss and Crafts on irc.libera.chat. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash Foss and Crafts. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free. And stay crafty. Do you have some pre? Basically, I have some pre audio. Okay. I'm not sure what you're going to think about it. You ready? Mm hmm. All right, Christine. Morgan's not feeling well. It's up to you to do the intro for the both of you. All right. You can do this. It's a professional podcast. Act like a professional person. So you had to act professional. I do appreciate it. But yeah, that's not going to be the intro of our episode. <laughs> <laughs>